I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and I am delighted to have on the podcast a former colleague, a good friend, but also now the executive director of the St. George's Society of New York. Welcome to the podcast, Claire Risman. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's lovely to be with you. So I think today we're going to be doing a bit of government, a bit of charity. Do we call it charity in America or do we have to call it non-profit? Uh, I, I like charity. We have charitable programs, so let's right. call it what it is. Bit of charity, bit of New York, bit of whiskey, bit of reminiscing, probably. So sometimes we don't do the whiskey bit straight away, but I'm quite thirsty. So let's crack on with some whiskey. Claire Isman, former, obviously, because you work for the government, you will have, like me, had to go to lots of whiskey tastings and represent the Scottish distilling industry. So what whiskey have you got? I hope it's not bourbon. <laughs> it's not, although I was tempted. But um, no, I have the pleasure of um, the Balvenie Caribbean cast 14 years, um, which I absolutely love. So when I was thinking about what to drink, it was quite a tough choice. But then really, there was a standout for me. And it's this one. Excellent. And well done, even though you've lived in America for a very long time, for calling it Caribbean cask and not Caribbean <laughs> cask. Uh, were you at the taste? We, we were invited by our friends at Balvenie to do a tasting when I was in New York once. Um, I don't know if you were there for that one, but they were making old fashions with the Balvenie 14 Caribbean cask, which is the first time I'd ever had it in old fashioned. And it was with all the New York colleagues. I don't know if you just, maybe we just didn't invite you or you weren't there that weekend. or week. I must have been away doing something very important, Dan, because I yeah, never I, an invitation. <laughs> I can only imagine how important it was. Um, so I was thinking like, what was, obviously I have to have scotch because we're former British government colleagues. I was thinking, you know, what can we, what can I have that's appropriate? Um, and I've decided to go with the uh, Glendronic 21 Parliament edition, because obviously, even though we never actually work for Parliament, it's sort of linked to the British government who we work for. So, I thought you were going um, for my age. Um, <laughs> I, now oh, you've put me in a tricky position now, because I want to make a joke about, oh, I don't have the 40-year-old, but um, I won't do that because I'm still a diplomat at heart. So, Am I allowed yeah. to pour? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Please do. So, Doing it with noises there, sound effects and everything. Oh, yeah, no, this is the real thing. So, um, Claire, cheers. Cheers. You, you sort of bang it on the screen without breaking <laughs> it. Um, lovely. Right. Mm. St George's Society. That sounds like an like a an organisation with gravitas and history and important duties. So tell me what what it's all about. What it's all about. Well, um, you're absolutely right. There is gravitas and importance behind it. So I better do it justice. But um, 
we we think the organization was founded in 1770 um but there are references to it being uh, activity from 1762 so there's quite a lot of history um in the um in the organization and and it's funny i was going through some of our um historical documents recently and apparently in 1762 96 ladies and a similar number of gentlemen got together in their finery and um, had the most elegant ever seen entertainment in New York of its day. So um, I'd love to say that that's exactly the kind of tempo and uh, type of activity we like to do to this day. We th- It started as a membership society, but at a certain point it morphed into um, a group of people who wanted to support others that were emigrating to the US and starting their businesses. And many of them were successful, but not all of them were. And so they realized that actually there was a level of support that was needed for some people to either settle into um, the US or to um, get support to kind of return back to the UK if it wasn't for them to to, to be here. But um, over the years, the society's done a number of things such as um, support going up to Albany, the New York capital, and lobbying for immigrant rights. We were, we were before the consulate existed, we had consular duties effectively. So emergency funds for stranded nationals, but also um, lobbying and policy making. And in that, two, we had our 250th anniversary last year, which was a fantastic year for an anniversary when you have all sorts of great plans and that sort of pandemic thing got in the way of, uh, of the plans that we had. But anyway, in the 251 years, we've done all sorts of incredible things like um, we're an employment agency in the Great Depression. We supported GI brides that came over from the UK. Um, We looked after the families of survivors from the Titanic. You know, anything that has happened in the New York area, obviously 9-11, we were the founding, one of the founding partners for a memorial garden that was set up for members of the Commonwealth and and British um, victims' families so they could have a kind of quiet place to to reflect on on, uh, their family members. But we, the society has been involved in sort of everything that has happened in New York. Um, and so it's a real privilege to be the executive director and sort of lead the charge for the future of the organisation. Extraordinary. So it's, it's, it's basically, because obviously when we're in government overseas here, part of our jobs or our colleagues' jobs was to help British expats. So yours was a bit of that at one point and has just, continue to be a support organization that's effectively like an anglo-american charity supporting is it just sort of not stranded brits but versions of sort of brits who need support or is it broader than that now it's much broader than that now so so that was the origins of it but but essentially what what was recognized um was in order to have you know our our community has sort of established and assimilated into the fabric of the city and most of our members have really enjoyed being in New York and really feel that they want to support their neighbours and friends that are here. So actually we have three charitable programmes, only one of which is supporting um, Brits. Now the the other two programmes are really supporting New Yorkers who can link their um, heritage to either the UK or the Commonwealth. Um, and so actually we have a program that supports students in the City University of New York and over um, <clears throat> we've, we've supported over 400 students and raised over a million dollars um, in support of them having scholarships. And, and the reason we do that is because 
there's still extreme poverty in parts of New York and access to equal education and all of those things, we recognised that actually we were in a position to help that. So, so we have, we, until last year, we were the biggest single donor to the City University of New York. Um, and, and that's real New Yorkers that have emigrated here from across the 54 countries of the Commonwealth. Um, we also support seniors who are at risk of being made homeless and or, or some of them that need some support as they're reaching their final days. So it sort of gives them comfort and dignity to, to see out their last uh, last days. But some of our seniors have been had their rent paid by us for 25 years because we, we, we support them after the age of 65 and some of them have lived until they've reached 100. So that's quite a long commitment for us. Um, but the majority of those, I'd say sort of 70 to 80% of those are actually non-Brits. They're from um, parts of Africa, Southeast Asia and the Caribbean. So, um, so yeah, wide, wide range of um, New Yorkers that we are supporting. And then the, the other programme that I said that's slightly different is British families who have are in the unfortunate position of having children that are receiving cancer treatment in New York. They come over here, they're overwhelmed by the amount of treatment and the sort of things they need to do. And our community, our network provides support to them and sort of says, you know, go buy your Ribena here, or um, this is how the uh, subway works, or come and, you know, meet people and ring us at any time if you need anything. So it's more that um, camaraderie and, and network of support but um, yeah we, we've changed the mission of the charitable programs so that we are relevant to New Yorkers not just those from the the, um, the UK. Wow extraordinary extraordinary mission no wonder David Beckham wants to help. <laughs> <laughs> well he, he did he did send us a lovely message last year at our gala so yeah, no, hopefully he'll do it again. <laughs> good on him good on him um, very good so I guess a question about charities or nonprofits. Why do they call them nonprofits in America? Is it just because charity sounds wrong, or is it just because I don't know? Do you know why Americans call them nonprofits? I find it really odd. It's yeah, charity. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Right. There you go. That's an informative part of the podcast. So, because um, you're not making a profit for your individual, it's making a um, you're you're donating towards a program, aren't you? So there's no profit because you're not saving it. I guess I don't know. We'll look it up. <laughs> we'll look it. We'll, we'll Google it later. Okay. So working for a charity during a global pandemic, so you've got more people in need, presumably, but then also potentially some of the people who you might normally be seeking um, funds from. Obviously, some people have had a great financially pandemic, but plenty of people haven't. So what what does that what has that looked like in terms of and also you can't do the event, you know, you can't just do your big galas. I know you obviously did an online one which featured David Beckham, but and many other people, but what what, what has it been like? And I know obviously you're new to it, so you can't compare it in some ways, but how does that how has that all played out with nonprofits in a pandemic? It's really interesting. I mean, I think there's um, we we have a really solid um, supporter and donor base, and those individuals have been nothing but incredible. And it's been humbling to um, to get kind of responses every time we put a call out. The, the our sort of uh, supporters have been brilliant at coming up and, and recognizing the very real need. I think one of the big challenges of last year um, for us has been why we are relevant because what we've seen in the sector is that 
people are motivated to give to those causes that they really believe need some um, some change and can help make a difference. And depending on the generation that you are in, you want to see impact and change in different ways. So the challenge for, for me um, leading the organisation is articulating what we are going to do and what impact that's going to do because, um, you know, you look at other organisations and their donations went through the roof at, at various points last year because the broad, you know, American population were... Uh, compelled to give to causes that they were passionate about. So, so it's really about telling your story and tapping into that so that people feel like their money is going to go to the right things and things that they care about. Um, the other thing, I think there's been a little bit of, um, of we've done very well in whatever industry that, you know, whatever sector or industry that people are working in where they have done well over the pandemic, that they feel like, okay, we need to give our money to, to um, philanthropic causes where people aren't doing so well. So, um, you know, that's, that's been a kind of surprising piece where people have been, what do you need? How do you, how can we give it to you? I think we have seen some of our, our supporters who have struggled, though, and, you know, lost jobs and all the rest of it. And so the other thing about our organisation is, although money is wonderful, it's not the only way that you can provide support. And so we found volunteering has increased and people wanting to engage in the causes that we support in a, in a more, um, you know, sort of resource intensive way. So, for instance, with our seniors, we had a phone a, um a senior program. These were isolated seniors. They couldn't get out of the house. They were frightened if they went out of the house. This was all before vaccinations. But we had a large number of, our, of um, members that volunteered to ring some of our seniors once a week, twice a week, whatever it was. And they've built up lovely relationships, having never met these individuals. But, you know, now we're, we're trying to do something where perhaps we can get everyone together once everyone's vaccinated. Um, so it's not just the money, it's the cause and it's the, the sort of purpose that people are looking for. And, and we've been able to navigate that. Of course, I want to do more. But, um, you know, that's that's been a really interesting uh, process to be engaged in. Yeah, I've always been fascinated since I moved to America by the the non-profit sector. It feels very, as a British person, it feels very different over here. So see, a big part of it is the sort of tax break part of it. Now, I'm not saying people only give because they reduce their taxes. That's obviously not the point. But, you know, there are some huge donations that are given and some huge pro. You look at things like the Getty Center in LA, which is the most extraordinary place, which is obviously was a it's a big it's a huge project but you get it feels to me it's different here the the, the scale is bigger but also like uh, yeah i'm sure you're not one of these people but i know it's like some non-profits i remember seeing salaries advertised for some of the big non-profits and they were you know twice what ceos in the uk might earn because these are like 300 million dollar businesses so it feels like i know they're called non-profits and they are non-profits but they feel like very big business and they feel more businessy in America than the UK, although still doing the same sorts of things. Is that right? Or am I misunderstanding how it works? No, I, I think so. So, you know, aim off a little bit because I'm still quite new at this. Um, but I think when you talk to people who are giving you money, you have to look at them like they're investors. And if you don't compel them to think about what you're doing in terms of a good investment, then um, you're not going to get their money. Pe people are 
you know, there, there's a sort of British trait that we don't like talking about money so much. But actually, I think there's a something in that, well, what are you doing with my money and how do I know it's going to the right things? And I think the tax break is part of that, right? You want to double the money. You want to make it work harder for you if you because those people or their family or whoever has worked really hard to get that. So so I think there's there shouldn't be anything um uh, wrong in making it uh, advantageous for people to give money. Um, and I think there shouldn't be anything wrong in having attractive salaries to, and I would say that, wouldn't I, um, to make sure that you have the right talent within the philanthropic sector, just like anywhere else. And and I, you know, you you'd have the responsibility of looking after people's money and making and, and making decisions that will impact a large number of people. So you have to be absolutely sure you're spending it wisely and doing doing the right things. So um, I don't think we should shy away from the, the business side of it. You should be a diplomat. It's a very, very good <laughs> answer. that once. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so actually, that sort of thinking about it as an investment is actually exactly right. That That's right. I guess here's a question. So you said it. British people don't like talking about money. Does this make it a bit of a weird non-profit? Because obviously there'll be a part of the transaction as being supporters of the St George's Society where, you know, at some point people need to talk about money. But but you're getting, you're a British person asking potentially other British people for money. Is it all just very awkward and you play a big sort of British dance? No, because when you move to New York, and maybe this is the difference between New York and LA, you've, you've been in, there is an unofficial rule. If you're in New York for more than nine years, you're a New Yorker. So we leave all that British anxiety behind and, and you know, never mind, move on. And New York is all about the deal. So um, if you're here for longer than five minutes, you should be able to, to talk about money in a, in a, a way that, um, uh, might seem strange to a British person sitting in Gloucester or wherever. So before we move on to some government stuff, the Titanic thing is fascinating. Like, I don't know how much you is in your archives, but I'd love to hear more about what the St George's Society did in the Titanic days. Yeah, so... so- I, I actually have um, a, a, a book that I'm uh, working my way through, the history of the St. George's Society, and there's quite interesting sort of pulling some of the stories. I happened to go to Charleston a couple of months back and I got a, a book about our man in Charleston and the two worlds collided because that guy happened to be the Consul General in New York and he talked about a royal visit um, in the 1800s and in our in our documents it talked about this uh, Robert Bunch being the Consul General here and I was like wow my mind is blown so um, I what I to answer your question about the Titanic I need to do some further research on it but basically when um, survivors came off of the, the the Titanic and they docked in New York, they had nothing. <laughs> you know? And some of the families that were waiting to greet people who were on the Titanic, they had no way of of getting message, you know, they didn't understand what was going on or how to reach people or, you know, that sort of consular duty type stuff. So the St. George's Society inhabited a space where it was like, okay, they and, and this is me guessing at the actual level of support they gave you know they needed blankets they needed food they needed somewhere to stay or they needed money for hotels whatever it was it would have been that kind of care that they gave as well as being a kind of communication point for you know getting messages to and from different family members who were separated and couldn't couldn't do that we were we were a link and I think 
at most successful work that we've done as an emergency um, is providing that link and, and sort of comfort and support and people that you can talk to. We have two social workers on the books um, and they're obviously trained in doing that. And we would have had people in the society that were there to give comfort rather than the, you know, the, the sort of consulate who give a very bureaucratic, very professional but kind of bureaucratic response because their role is very different we're a society where we have social workers and we can give that comfort if someone just wants their hand held and you know a warm cup of tea or whatever after this incredibly traumatic incident that's just happened in their life probably the most traumatic thing they will ever experience so um it's it's one of those things I want to do a bit more digging on but um it would have been that kind of very real tangible support extraordinary extraordinary so you mentioned the concert. Let's talk about government. So you you were in the government for I don't want to age you, but <laughs> nearly, nearly as long as my whiskey was sat in the barrels. Let's stick with that. <laughs> okay, you were in government for a while. Um, New York is, and ex- I mean obviously, DC gets the most visits from a because it's obviously the seat of government. So you're getting Prime Minister of and all that. But New York, because of the UN Congress every year, and just because it's New York, you will have had in your time a lot of prime ministerial visits, decent handful of royal visits of all types, including the like the fun ones everyone reads about in the press, like when LeBron James met Will and Kate, um, that sort of stuff, um, and I don't know how many other visits. And then you did like a big tour with the Red Arrows. It must have been an extraordinary. I mean, I obviously I worked in government as well, so I know some of this. But somehow being in New York feels like you would have had this sort of stuff going on on a much more regular basis than we would have seen in Los Angeles. I hate to break it to you, but that's absolutely true, Dan. It was much better here in New York than it was in Los Angeles. <laughs> Um, and of course, I, I had a lot of colleagues that I worked with across uh, North America. But um, no, it was an enormous, enormous privilege. And I look back on on the time that just in that um, in that role as, as head of the Great Britain campaign, the sort of range of things that um, I led teams on or worked on. And and it was kind of crazy. One of the things I said to the team or anyone that I recruited is, no two days will be the same, and it will be from the sublime to the bloody ridiculous. And it really was this roller coaster of how do we make that happen in a week? <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, it's, it was real, really challenging and um, exciting and frustrating. But, you know, at the end of the sort of whatever the assignment was that was set at the end of it, when you achieved it, it was phenomenal for, for you and the team that were involved. And I should say it was always a large team of people that that was involved in any of these programs. But um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And some crazy moments. Um, and I wondered just how, if you press me a little bit, I might be indiscreet about some of them. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't be a proper podcaster if I didn't press you. So yeah. Tell me some stories that you probably shouldn't tell me. <laughs> well, you did mention royals, and so actually, um, this was there, there were a couple of uh, couple of things that um, were really quite bizarre. Um, we had this uh, someone had, someone in London had a great idea about getting a double decker bus over to New York, and they hadn't quite factored in that the, this wonderful new double decker bus was 
rather large and much bigger than all the street furniture in New York. So, of course, it needed special routes um, because it would hit all the traffic lights and things if we hadn't have planned a special route. So we had this brilliant idea in London, but a complete headache deploying it here and, and took weeks and weeks of, of arranging. That bus coincided with the visit, the, the um, second visit by Prince Harry to New York. And um, that then triggered a sequence of events that meant the Prime Minister decided to, uh, David Cameron was going to come over at the same time. So we ended up with um, this sort of moment in time with a double-decker bus, a prince and a prime minister in um, a, a wonderful venue um, in, in the Milk Studios down in in, um, in Lower Manhattan. And the guest list for that event was really quite strange, but I, I was actually responsible for introducing Prince Harry to uh, Queen of Dragons. So Amelia Clark was in town at the time. So that could have, you know, maybe that would have happened. Maybe they should have had a little bit longer together. I don't know. I hear he's very happy now. It was, it, was, it was a weird job, the sort of things we used to do. And the, like you obviously, when we worked together specifically on things, we had a couple of things in Austin, South by Southwest, but like you'd come across for our Oscars party, which obviously is running the great campaign. You were a big part of organising those things. And I always found those things extraordinary because you'd be at these events and obviously very legitimate uh, Oscar-nominated stars would be at these events. But then it was sort of the people around them. And I remember there was one we did in L.A. So, you know, the, Eddie Redmayne was there um, and James Corden was there. And then, like, Idris Elba showed up and Katy Perry. Um, sorry, um, not Katy Perry. Um, Jesse J. Jesse, that was the oh, year yeah. after. That and then Naomi <laughs> Campbell. It was just all sorts of random people, all, like, British yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. It was great. It was um, it was a very odd. You you would just meet weird people all the time in a great way. It was always fun because that actually one of the the sort of targets was to make that a must um, attend event in um, in the Oscar week. And this was, of course, all a very different era. And I don't quite know what they you know that all looks like now with all the changes that have been going on uh, with the Academy Awards. But anyway, it was a great event, and it, as you say, legitimate business reasons for doing it. But it also meant I had this sort of dubious honour of going, no, so and so can't come, and some really quite big. You know, we had real capacity issues, and would have these sort of very random. Um, requests from people who on a normal event we would be delighted to host but we just didn't have the capacity for it but my biggest I don't know if it's a regret but the the sort of thing that I got asked um I had to do this big event in New York around we wrapped a subway so we had a big fashion shoot with um Patrick DeMarchelier took the photo and Anna Wintour and, and the Vogue team arranged for the great and the good of British fashion who were in New York for New York Fashion Week and so Victoria Beckham and Hamish Bowles and the, the ladies from Marquesa, Karen Elson. It was, it was, you know, a wonderful, wonderful shot and um, quite an experience of doing that. But London then sort of thought, well, well hang on, why don't we use this more um, for the six weeks of the, of the wrapping of the subway? 
And we're like, okay, what can we do? How should we do that? So you know, we've got this new, there's a, a, a relationship with this new band that's coming out and they're going to be quite big. Do you want to do something? And I, who are they? And it was this boy band. And I said, well, no, I don't, because I don't want to be responsible for um, this, you know, chaos on the underground in New York. And I had sort of visions of um, screaming teenage fans and sort of crushes and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, it's a little bit of regret if there was anything, because it was One Direction. And I don't know what happened to them, but I could have done a big sort of partnership thing on the subway with One Direction. <laughs> you, could have, you could have been like hanging out at, at a nightclub with Harry. Harry. Yeah. Uh, oh, you missed that. You missed out. Missed I out. Used, that might be, a, might be a regret. I used to see Harry at Soho House quite a lot in, in LA. So, you know. Wearing his tweed outfits. I, I love his fashion sense. He's amazing. No, indeed. Oh, extraordinary. No, they were, they were, they were fascinating jobs. So what was... What was the, your proudest? I mean, I know uh, you know you're you are you are always right to say these were team efforts, and they absolutely were. And you know, they, and the team is everything from like you know it's London, but it's also colleagues in New York and so on. But of all the things that you worked on, what would be your proudest great campaign achievement during your time in charge of it in the US? Oh, that's really tough because there's the sort of small moments with companies that said, actually, your intervention really helped us grow. And that puts, um, you know, food on their table or, or was sort of their whole world lit up. And so that, you know, there were lots of those and that was amazing. Um but, but I have to say, um, you know, we just watched the G7 stuff and the Red Arrows were there flying for the world leaders and they are remarkable. And so I think, you know, it was my final year in um, working in government and um, arranging the Red Arrows tour with a cast of thousands, but, you know, uh, 26 cities, 120 events, um, millions of people engaged at the, the air show side, but um, which obviously I didn't plan any of the air show stuff, but I did a lot of the um, the sort of on the ground activities that were business facing. And, and that was um, just this enormous uh, tour, enormous task and really complex um, piece of work. So, so I think that would be something that I would, I would put right up there as a once in a lifetime um, opportunity. And, um, you know, there was a core group of five of us, I think, who really made that work, each of us with a very clear role, but I'm really proud to have been one of, one of that small group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, what an incredible tour that was. Um, and I think I was at two or three of the events. And in fact, you actually, uh, I'm trying to think what episode it was, but about 50 episodes ago, Red 5 from the Red Arrows appeared on this podcast, thanks to, to you. So there you go. So it really was a great achievement. You managed to get a fighter pilot on the podcast. So there you go. Um, no, extraordinary. So, and uh, you know, this is interesting because I think this sometimes, but not others. Do you miss, because of the sort of jobs they are, and I think they are unique, those sort of government roles, overseas particularly. Do you miss any of that? Um, do I miss any of it? I think you have to grow. I think you have to move on. So no looking back. Um, but I think it was definitely um, the right thing for me to do at the time. And I loved it. But do I miss it? No. Okay. Do I miss the people? Some of them? Absolutely. And, and I'm lucky to have you know, some really great friends um, that I'm still in touch with and others who you sort of keep tabs on on LinkedIn and think, okay, they're doing great things and and that's wonderful. So so it was a, an enormous privilege 
it was really challenging. It was wonderful, real, you know, high highs, low lows. Um, but um, do I miss it? No, I'm very excited about what I'm doing now and uh, don't look back. Plus, you still get to hang out with David Beckham or at least interact with his team. So, you know, <laughs> um, very good. Look, last question, which we ask every guest, as you know, because you are a regular listener. You, in fact, you sat in the room while we were doing Red Five. I did. Drinking whiskey on the side. So I might have done. Sure. Um, that was, what was that? That was uh, Glenn Elgin, I think it was. Um, that was a fun podcast. Anyway. Yeah, um, because it was RAF Lossy Mouth. So, yeah, I that's friend... right. It was the nearest distillery to Lossy yeah, Mouth. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Look at you. Even you remembered more than I did the reason why I chose that Great whiskey. Very good. You should be. You should work <laughs> in a high-profile job. Right. So, last question. If you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? What would it be? And where would it be? Well, I, the easy one to start with, I think it has to be the Caribbean cask, what I'm drinking now. I am not a whiskey expert, but I know what I like, as they say. And I have been privileged to work with a lot of people, as you've mentioned earlier, um, who know a lot about whiskey and they've always um, you know, shared amazing things in the sort of background and, and the taste profiles. Um, but this one just really talks to, to um, what I like. So I'm, I'm very happy with this one. Where would it be? So um, this is tough because I've got lots of places that are sort of happy places. Um, but I thought, given everything that's going on at the moment, I would say Scarf Spa at the Rosewood Hotel in London. If I can get back to London on a trip, um, which hopefully at some point soon without um, having too many tests and all the rest of it, um, it would be an, an enormous pre uh, privilege to be at Scarf Spa and a really sort of enjoyable experience. It's a great atmosphere. They have a great collection of whiskies amongst um, other things. It's a beautiful venue, great music, and it also happens to be uh, run by a very dear friend of mine. So that's um, uh, the place that I would choose. If you haven't been to Scarf Spa, go. Um, apparently, then, Drake, hmm? apparently Drake likes it there. Uh, I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> heard from his, his masseuse was telling me that. <laughs> You know, LA school, you know how it is. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Um, and then who? So this is the tricky one. So I thought, you know, where, where to go? I thought about James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser, um, who you will not know who that is, but he's from Outlander. And he's this incredible leader and warrior and polyglot and uh, is also easy on the eye. Um, but he's not real, so can't have him. <laughs> so, well, well, I mean, theoretically, you could. Well, anyway, I, I, I thought that wouldn't be where I wanted to go. He would be wonderful, but he doesn't really exist other than in my imagination and millions of other people's imagination. Um, so I, I actually decided Mackenzie Scott. And why did I choose her? So she's clearly very smart and... Um, uh, accomplished and she basically in the last year overturned the philanthropy sector by donating six billion dollars to um, charitable causes and um, put sort of very few caveats around it and what she's done is she recognized the sort of very real needs um, that, that um, the charity sector has and she decided that you know, I'm going to give money to, to um, these causes to um, increase um, social mobility and access to education and 
all of those things which are really important to the society. Um, until last year, we were the biggest single donor, I think I mentioned, to Lehman College. What pipped us was her $30 million donation. So I'd love to sit and share a whiskey with her and talk about how we can partner on the right things to make that change that we both want to do. Because, by the way, her wealth has increased over the last year, even though she gave away $6 billion. So I know she's got some money that she will, wants to give to the right causes. So I'd love to have a, a glass of whiskey with Mackenzie if, if she's up for it. Amazing. Claire Risman, Executive Director of the St. George's Society of New York. And we'll put a little link in the in the podcast. So if people would like to donate to your fabulous organisation, they would be more than welcome to with all the tax benefits that confers, apparently. Um, so thank you very much for being part of the podcast. It's been great to catch up. Thank you very much, Dan. Great to see you again. See you soon. Mm, I love scotch. 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 And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>